Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. I'm your host, Ron Huntley. I'm excited to report that our website is finally live. Check it out at ronhuntley.com. While you're there, sign up for the Unlocking Your Parish live book study. There'll be three time offerings to cover North America, Europe, and Australia. So many churches use Alpha, but in any one parish, there's only a few people who really understand the impact Alpha could have if people went all in. This book study is going to help you create an army of vision carriers to turn your church into an invitational movement that will go beyond the pews. Does that sound good to you? I hope it does. Be sure to sign up. It starts next week. When we decided to host a conference at St. Benedict Parish in 2016, we did it to solve a growing phenomenon. People were calling us from all over the place, asking for advice and support. We didn't even know if anyone would show up yet. It sold out, but it wasn't just Catholics. We were thrilled to welcome people from several other traditions. Our guest today was one of those people who were at our first conference. His name is Lee Critcher. He's a leader and an author. He knows what it takes to turn around a church because he did it. Our conversation today is going to get you thinking differently. Enjoy the episode. Lift off and the clock has started. If there's anything that we've learned over the past year is that change is often not in our control, but how we respond to change is. Our guest today is Lee Critcher. Lee is the president of the Pittsburgh Leadership Foundation. No stranger to change in churches or in business. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ron. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to join you. I had a great chance to meet you and, and also to read your book for a new generation, which actually left a, a profound impact on me and actually impacts the way I coach because you have this, this gift, this insight to be able to recognize where we're at and where we need to be and help people get from here to there. You just, and you captured so beautifully in that book. And I know you have a new one coming up and we'll talk a little bit about that at some point in the show today. But when it comes to leading change, what, what principles come to mind? What, what character comes to mind as, as we speak to leaders today as they listen in? Well, I think it's critical. And by the way, I, I think back fondly on when we first met in the amazing city of Halifax. And uh, being from Pittsburgh, we are so grateful for Halifax sending us Sidney Crosby, <laughs> one of the great heroes of Pittsburgh. And I know of Nova Scotia. So um, uh, thank, thank you for that. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Send him back, will you? <laughs> he, he, he helped to lead change in Pittsburgh to win us a couple Stanley Cups. So. That's true. We should have him on next week. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd, he'd be an awesome change leader. But one thing I found is that uh, for a lot of us leaders, and so I've had an opportunity to lead um, in the in the church as a pastor. I've been a leader in uh, corporate America in uh, a couple different corporations, and I'm currently leading a not-for-profit. So I've seen one thing that is common among leaders across all three 
is that some see themselves as change leaders and some don't. Uh, some see themselves as I don't as people who are trying to maintain the health of an organization, but not necessarily lead it through change. And the fact is, every leader in such a rapidly changing world as ours has got to develop, to some degree, change leadership skills. To some degree, a change leadership mentality that says, "Okay." Uh, the world's changing rapidly around us. And so what's that going to require us uh, to do? And, you know, one of the famous quotes that's often attributed to Jack Welch is, if the rate of change outside of your organization is more rapid than the rate of change inside, the end is in sight. And I've seen so many doors and organizations close their doors because they did not adapt to the new world in which they were existing. And there was this assumption that the status quo was okay. If we just maintain the status quo and pray that God blesses us, and I think prayer is very powerful, but we also need to uh, let our God lead us in the changes that need to be made to continue to be as effective in the future as we've been in the past. Well, you bring up something important, and and I can just feel the tension as leaders, particularly in our tradition in the Catholic Church, but again, this is just as relevant for business leaders or or not-for-profits, is that you probably have aspired or or ascribed to some core values, some core principles, and, and, and you believe that those are principles from a long time ago, you still believe in them just as much now, and you believe that they're a part of the future, and so it's like change, oh my gosh, but that would that would water down what the true essence of of who we are is, and so so we double down on things that we believe um, so importantly. And so, how does somebody navigate that? How does somebody recognize that they're holding on to the wrong things, and and and, and what is it that they can bring with them? Like, so do you know what I mean? Because some things we hold so dear, and we should. Some things we hold so dear, and we shouldn't. <laughs> how do we differentiate the two? Uh, well, in in the book you mentioned for a new generation, I, I document how we went about making changes at the church where I was pastoring, because we were in a place where our church had been uh, was dwindling in size, financially, uh, not just financially, but in the number of people who were attending, the number of people in our community we were reaching, it was rapidly going down. Um, the only thing rapidly going up was the average age of the people who were attending our church. And so the average age of the people attending our church were well into our 50s. And uh, when I started to take the lead- leadership in the church, I was 50. So I had no problem with 50-year-olds and older. I, I still felt young. But I also understood that the average age of the community we were serving was about 35. So we weren't reaching our community for Christ. And we were not reaching a multi-generational um, audience, quote unquote, or we, we weren't having a church that was multi-generational. And when you read in the scriptures about old men teaching young men and older women teaching younger women, et cetera, Paul's assumption when he's writing is that the church would be multi-generational, that it wouldn't just be older men and older women in the, in the pews. And that's exactly where we were. So we had to make some changes. Uh, One of the first things we had to do was identify what were the essentials 
that really made us who we were as a church. And those things were off the table for change. And that was our vision, our mission, our core values, our core beliefs. So in order to reach the next generation, there was nothing about our beliefs that needed to be changed or, again, our vision, mission, or values. But our approach to church, we had to say, can that approach be different? Can our practices be different? Are there certain programs or ministries that we have that we can either start or stop uh, that would advance our mission, vision, values, and beliefs? And so the first thing was to find out what were the untouchables and the things that will never, because if those things change, it takes away the identity of the organization or the church. Um, And once you identify those, then as Jim Collins says, then everything else can change. Uh, And that's then the real, the hardest part is goes beyond the identifying the essentials. And that is to reducing the distractions. What are the things that we are currently doing how we are acting that actually are distracting us or the people we're trying to reach from our mission and our vision. And it, it was that reduction of distractions. It was, it was the, the fact is our biggest change in the church um, came not because of what we started to do, but it came from what we stopped doing. And then we were able to focus our energy and um, all of our resources into that handful of essential things that really helped our church to turn around. And uh, over a 15-year period, we went from 150 people averaging age in the 50s to about 2,000 people attending our church. That was truly multi-generational with an average age of 35, which actually matched almost exactly the community we were serving. Um, But again, identifying the essentials. And so you have this piece, we're not changing everything, but now that we've identified the essentials, everything else is on the table for change. And um, that's the approach we took. So what I'm hearing you say is like you said, that, that, that process of identifying the essentials and then, but also the, you know, who is it? Like, what do we want to look like? So that picture of the, your future church, multi-generational and, and the approximate age, average age of, of the community, like you're a church that's planted literally in a community. And so, so those two things are necessary. What were some of the issues that you had to face as a leader that made that challenging? Well, of the 150 people who were attending the church, one of the reasons they were attending the church is because they liked the way things were. And so when you're talking to people about making changes to something that they like, um, and many of those things were things that I'm the one who taught them to like in the earlier years. So it was, you know, so they were quoting me. It's back. all your fault. <laughs> they were quoting me back to me about why we shouldn't be changing these things. But um, we had, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that we had to do was to have a change of mindset within our organization and within the church. And, you know, you think about when the Apostle Paul talked about, uh, being renewed in our mind. I think churches need to be renewed in our thinking. And that change of mindset isn't just personal. I think it's organizational. So we had a number of things. You know, one thing that was a self-protecting uh, statement as the church was dwindling, 
uh, we had a mindset that said something like, God doesn't care about numbers, and quality is more important than quantity. And so I really had to call that out on the weekend messages. And I said, first of all, uh, God sent his son, Jesus, to die for this world. That's a lot of people. Clearly, <laughs> he cares about numbers of people. He doesn't just care about the 150 people in this, in this sanctuary. He cares about all those empty chairs that represent the people who are out there who are far from God. And as far as quality versus quantity, if what you're saying is the 150 of us in this room are higher quality than the people who have either left the church or are out there not attending the church, well, I believe the quality of of, uh, of someone is based on what was paid for them, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's not get too carried away saying how we're better quality than somebody else. And so some of those uh, attitudes needed to uh, change, and our mindset needed to change to say God does care about numbers. He does care about the people far from God in our community, and every person is as highly loved and uh, high quality <laughs> out there as I am. Uh, so those were things we needed to talk about, but perhaps the most important mindset change we had to address was the feeling that if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for my kid. Mm. If it's good enough for me. If, so the music that I like, if the, if then, then it's good enough for the kid. The way our facility is set up, if it's good enough for me, then it's good enough for them. Uh, and you know, the approach to the messages or the homilies uh, on the weekend, if it's good enough for me, then it should be good enough for them. And so there was this feeling like we need to pray. And our prayer was, God, bring our children back to church, bring our grandchildren back to church, bring the next generation back to church. In Jesus name, bring them back, bring them back. But there was always an unspoken tag to that prayer bring them back without us needing to change. Bring us back without us needing to do anything different than what we're doing. God, bring them back in Jesus' name. And the fact is, it's kind of like in Pittsburgh, we're a steel town. Um, at least we used to be a steel town. There were steel mills up and down the rivers uh, everywhere you looked. And that's why we've got the Pittsburgh Steelers, because that's everything we were known for. And I remember as they were tearing the steel mills down, and our, our city is now a high-tech and healthcare um, city, but as the steel mills were being torn down, I talked to a guy in his mid-30s, and I said, what are you going to do um, now that you've been laid off from the steel mills? And <clears throat> he said, hey, my great-grandfather was a steel worker. My grandfather was a steel worker. My father was a steel worker. I am a steel worker, and I'm just going to wait for things to come back around. Well, they never came back around. You, you have to realize when the world around us changes that you can't just wait for things to come back around. And our world rapidly changed as a church. You know, when I was um, in my teens and 20s, uh, particularly in, in, my, in grade school and high school, everybody went to church automatically. It was the thing you do on a weekend. Well, that, that's changed so much now if you're going to reach the next generation, they don't feel obligated to come. You have to have something that they want to come to. And so you can't, we had to change our mindset from if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for our children 
to what will it take to reach the next generation? And that statement turned into a question. And actually, that was not a hard thing for when I was speaking on the weekends for our, the people who were there. They were saying, my kids don't come, my grandkids don't come, so maybe I do need to be open to some changes. And, and Lee, I would say the, the, one of the number one pains that I hear when I speak in our Catholic tradition, visit different parts of the world, is the pain that I did everything the church told me to do and my kids have left the church and now my grandkids are growing up without any faith and, and, and it's killing people. And, and I do believe there's this collective passion within, you know, you're, you're saying, geez, your church had a problem, 150 people and, and people were in their fifties. And most Catholic churches would love to have that problem because we're way older than that. <laughs> the average Catholic church like fifties. Wow. What a young congregation. <laughs> we're way older than that. Like we're like, so, and, we're, and to be honest with you, a lot of congregations aren't asking, still aren't asking that question. They're still not asking that question, but they hurt and they pain so much. And, and, and so it's such like, I hope our listeners, like, I hope it landed. Like I could just see the, the listenership just stop as you started to say, Lord, bring all those people back without us having to change. It's like, yeah, that is my prayer. What's wrong with that prayer? <laughs> That's a perfectly good prayer. What's he talking about? <laughs> I'm not listening anymore. This is painful because we really do. Nietzsche, and, you know, and Pope Francis was very clear in Joy of the Gospel, like he just dreams of a church that would lay all of these things down for the sake of mission. And everything that you're saying is consistent with what Pope Francis is, is, is his dream. Um, you, you know, we, we started to look then at what are some things that have nothing to do with our mission uh, and our core beliefs, but we need to consider if we're going to reach the next generation. One of those things, for instance, we had a 50,000 square foot campus or facility that included our sanctuary and the, you know, different classrooms, et cetera. The amount of space that was dedicated to children and youth, youth was zero square feet. Now the children and youth were allowed to use certain rooms at certain times, as long as they did it with the permission of the adults who controlled those rooms and the groups that controlled those rooms and it had to be exactly the way they found it. Um, but there was no question. These, every square foot of this belongs to the aging adults of our church. Well, right away we said, we're gonna start to create some children's spaces. We, we took what was a chapel and turned it into a kid's theater that someone would think you're walking more into like a Nickelodeon set or a Disney set. Yeah. And you know, people, of course, said, well, wait a second, you can't do that. That's our space. And it was like, you know what? We have to put feet to our prayers if we want to reach young people. And I remember after remodeling that one room, I was walking behind and, and we started to get visitors again, by the way, at some point when we started to make some changes. And there was a couple walking down with a kid who probably was seven or eight years old. And he looked in the kids theater and he said, mom and dad, they love kids around here. Oh. And that's a message. And then right now of the 50,000 square feet of our church, I bet you that um, 20 to 25,000 is devoted completely to children and youth. Um, um, however, the adults can use it if they leave it. <laughs> <they> <laughs> <found> <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And so it was interesting that was how, how you set up your space has nothing to do with your beliefs. But if you believe you want to reach young people, then set it up to attract young people. Um, we, uh, another thing that we changed is we said, okay, we're trying to reach young people, but every single person who's up front on a weekend leading the service, whether they're singing, praying, giving announcements, they're, their average age is 55, 60, 65. The longer you've been in the church, the more those upfront roles belong to you. I, I control them. Um, and we just said, we're not going to reach, yeah, the, the 15 year olds and 20 year olds and 30 year olds, they, they're not going to come to our church if they walk in and no one at all upfront looks like them. So we actually put in a rule. Initially, it was what we called our 50% rule. 50% of everybody who was in an upfront role during a weekend service had to be the age of our community or younger, which was 35. So we had to start recruiting people. And somebody would say, wait a second, you know, the announcements is my ministry. And it's like, you know what? You don't need a lot of spiritual maturity to be able to give announcement. So let's get a 25-year-old up there giving announcements. And um, we had a worship team that includes some different instruments. Well, why do you need a 65-year-old playing electric guitar or a guitar when you can put a, a high schooler? And they say, well, they don't play as well as me. Um, yeah, but mentor them, coach yes. them. And so what happened was we had a, this mental shift of instead of this belongs to me, is how can I mentor the next generation to step into these roles? And I still will have very meaningful roles. And some people were on our board. Some people were small group leaders, which were at the heart of our church. Um, and all kinds of meaningful roles without necessarily always having to be the one up front on a weekend service. Again, the average age of the person who's making announcements or saying a prayer up front has nothing to do with the vision, mission, or beliefs of the church. But those are things that can be changed. And, you know, I often uh, think I heard an example, which I think is great for all organizations. And uh, I think about how many movies that over the last year or so I've rented with either my wife or my grandchildren or others. And then I think about how many of them I drove to the Blockbuster store to pick up. And it was zero. Yeah. I mean, there was a time where I was at the Blockbuster store twice a week, picking up a movie to watch, dropping one off that way. For your watch. late fees. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so the world changed. Did it change because people stopped watching movies? No. It's just the way in which they watch them dramatically changed. And they went from uh, over 10,000 Blockbuster outlets. The last I saw, there was one in North America. Um, and so are we in a blockbuster church or a blockbuster organization that's, that we're still renting movies? I mean, we're still meeting a, a need, but we're doing it in a way that people aren't connecting with anymore. Mm. And so then you can celebrate what your church has done in the community or your business, but you can't celebrate what's going to happen in the future. Um, and so I think there is this idea of change is necessary, 
and it may be some changes to things that I prefer. Right. But is it is it worth it to to become a healthy, long lasting, multi generational church? I remember years ago when I used to live in Moncton, there was a a, a Wesleyan church just booming. And my neighbor invited me there 300 times, drove me crazy. Uh, but then the longer I lived there, the more I loved my neighbor. And I knew she was coming from a good place. And I, I felt, I started to feel bad for saying no to her so often. So I thought, I'm going to go to her church. I'll go to mass on a Saturday night. And then I'll, I'll go over to her church Sunday morning because I know it would make her feel good. And she's been so persistent. And I went in there and it was unbelievable hospitality, incredible music. The preaching was out of this world. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? Like all of those things I just mentioned, we could be all of those things in the Catholic church. I don't know why we didn't ever set a goal as high as they have, because they're just people. Uh, and so clearly if they can do it, we could do it. I was just mesmerized. But one of the things I remember is that the pastor, he was, a, he, Pastor B, he was, I don't know, in his late 60s at the time, maybe. I don't know, 60s anyway. And uh, he is a very traditional man. He, he, a very traditional man. He wore a suit and a tie every single day. Uh, his shoes were always polished. Uh, he loved the organ and hymns. And, and so they had set up their services so that the more traditional service was at 11 and the more contemporary service was, you know, at 8.30 or 9, whatever. And what was so funny was, and I just learned this from one of their one of their parishioners or whatever, uh, was that the pastor hated the earlier service because he thought the music was way too loud and, you know, the drums and the electric guitars. And, and, and he got really crazy with the way he dressed is he actually took his tie off and he undid the top button. And for him, <laughs> that was a big deal. It was a sacrifice. But I love the very fact that it's, that's exactly what it was. That wasn't his preference. It wasn't his music style. It was, he preferred to wear a tie and his, you know, but, but as a leader, he recognized that that wasn't connecting with the next generation and he had to change. And I just thought, way to go, man. What a great example of leadership. That is sacrifice. He sacrificed his preference at the altar of mission. Uh, yeah, we had so many stories that sounded similar to that among our church members. We had one of our church members who came and he said, you know what, the young people you're trying to reach don't have checkbooks. And if you keep trying to reach them in this way, I'm leaving and my checkbook is going with me. Right. That was disheartening. And if too many people had said that, we, we wouldn't be around as a church anymore. We would be having a different discussion today. Yeah. But then I think of a woman named Eleanor Evans, who she was around 80 when we started to make changes to reach more young people. And um, after a few years, uh, she was sitting in her regular seat. And I just went over to her before service started. And I said, hey, Eleanor, how do you feel about the changes that we've made? And we, we've changed the music and things feel more youthful around here, et cetera. And she just said, I don't like them. I just don't really like them at all. And I said, well, you're still here. You're praying. You're attending. I know you're giving. even." special offerings to help redo our children's spaces. And she said, oh, well, that's because now my children will come to church with me. Uh -huh. And now my grandchildren will come to church with me. And I look around the church and I see the children and grandchildren of other church members who are attending. And they are meeting the same Jesus who changed my life. 
And so that's why I am very excited to be here, even though it was clear she didn't like a number of the changes. St. Eleanor, I'm going to call her. What a great She's in heaven now, and, but she's one of my great heroes of change. Interceding for you and, and, and the person who succeeded you. That is such a beautiful story. I, I remember one time during, during Lent, actually, I, I was going to, um, on Fridays, the priest had, after Stations of the Cross at lunchtime, he had... Um, tomato soup and crackers uh, and so for lunch. And so just invited anybody that wanted to. And so I was there and we just, I just hosted a concert for a, a Catholic recording artist named Janelle. Uh, she came to our small town of Truro and we put on this concert and we sold, you know, 600 tickets, which for a little wow. town, that was a lot. And uh, you know, but it was like Christian rock music, right? And, and uh, anyway, so that happened that week. So that, Friday, I'm sitting around with mostly elderly people. I was the youngest person there by quite a long shot. And I said, hey, did anybody get a chance to go to the concert this week? And, and one lady put up her hand. She said, oh, actually, several of them did. And she said, as soon as they started, I saw some of my friends get up and leave. I, well, I didn't know it was going to be that loud. And, uh, and she said, I didn't like it. But she said, I realized the young people did because the young people just got up and started dancing right away. And she said, and I had a choice to make. She said, so I got up and I shook what my mother gave me. I got up and I started dancing. And she said, I haven't had that much fun in so long. And I shared a vision with her. I said, I, I believe that we have the talent to make that kind of music in the Catholic Church. I really do. We have no shortage of talent. We have a shortage of vision. And I want to buy some equipment and start casting that vision and inviting people to start making music that will inspire the next generation. And the thing that happened next, I'll, I'll never forget, is she got up. I didn't know what she was doing. She got up from around the table and she came over and she dug in her purse and she took out all of the money she had in her purse and she laid it in front of me. And she said, that's the money I had set aside because today or next week is my husband's one year death anniversary. And I wanted to put an ad in the newspaper. But I would honor his memory much more by giving that money to you so that you can buy that equipment. And every other person around that table got up and emptied out their wallets and put it ah. in front of me. And I didn't ask for a cent. And so I say to people, don't you dare tell me that those elderly people aren't willing to make the change and sacrifice for the next generation. They're dying for leaders to have vision that will go and make a darn difference. And so they're like the St. Eleanor's of the world. They're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to do things they don't want. But for the love of Pete leaders, would you take us there? Yes, and there is that sense of boldness that a leader needs to have as a change leader uh, that is more than just, well, you know, I hope that the people come to this consensus that they, they're going to want to change without me leading. And it's unlikely, you know. I think of consensus, you know, uh, Aaron led the people through consensus while Moses was on the mountain, and it didn't work out very well. Uh, <laughs> and so I think the idea that, that you're not going to have to lead, that people are just going to come up with this. No, you lead. You say, uh, let's, let's not die as a church. Let's continue. Mm -hmm. what, what, why do you love your church? Don't you want that to be the same for generations to come? Let's do what we need to take to make this an 
ongoing, vital, amazing place. And, um, you know, these beliefs that are so valuable to you, we're not changing one of them. Let's just be able to introduce them to the next generation in a way that they can receive it, just like somebody introduced it to you in a way that you could receive. Mm. We've just uh, completed our, our last round of Alpha last night. And uh, my son had invited a bunch of his friends to experience Alpha with them, and, and, and they did. And I don't know if any of them really, none of them were practicing faith. Some of them had a faith background, but some of them didn't have any whatsoever. And uh, one of them said one day, the only reason he came to Alpha, he was telling my son, the only reason I'm here is because of you. You're like, I was, I'm here to do you a favor. And, but then I actually really liked it. Like the discussions, the conversations, the people I met, like I hate it, missing it. And, uh, I'd be willing, I mean, I don't want to go to church, but I'm willing to, uh, I'm willing to do alpha again. And, uh, my son said, um, you know, why, why are you not willing to go to church? Oh, because, uh, I don't know, because I, I, I don't want to be judged. Like, I don't want to want to be one of those people that is judged by everybody. And, and I, you know, and I don't want to be too religious. And he said, well, why don't you want to be too religious? He said, well, you know, then you're just, you know, then, you know, you just don't fit in and, you know, you, you're judging people. And I, I don't want to be that guy. He said, you do know the church put on alpha, right? And he's like, yeah, but it's not like you're the pastor. And my son said, yeah, but you do know our pastor has literally been on the alpha with us every single night. What? What are you talking about? You're kidding me. He's like, no. Like, what if what we're experiencing here in terms of authentic friendships and conversations and, and, and non-judgmentalness and, and just openness to sharing and, and encouraging each other and praying with each other, what if that's the culture that we're trying to facilitate in the church? Well, I'd go to that church, he said. He said, well, that's exactly what we're trying to do. All right. He said, I'll make you a deal. I'm coming to church, but I'm not coming to church for you. I'm coming to church for me. And <laughs> it's like, it's just so cool. And that, that person went from never being in a church in their lives and having no faith at all, not anti-faith, but had, didn't have any way to access faith, to now being a believer in God and willing to come to church. I'm thinking to myself, well, isn't that the best news ever? Like, isn't that why we exist? Isn't that the call that, you know, this, this guy's 21 years old? Absolutely. And Alpha is a perfect example. You know, whether you run an Alpha program or you don't, it has nothing to do with your core beliefs as a church. It's, it's just a practice, a strategy, a, an approach to church that, you know, there was no Alpha when I was growing up in church, but there is now. So let's try it. Let's try, you know, whatever the whatever other strategies may take place. And, you know, you were talking about the concert you had. Once our church got healthy, we were able, we had Matt Maher uh, at, at Matt our Mar, church. Matt yeah. Maher, And, you know, the place was filled with multi-generational, it was multi-generational, and it was absolutely amazing. And it's the kind of thing that people come in and they say, maybe I'll come back to this church, you know. And the way we introduce people to church uh, in today's world, to a great degree, the number one reason people come, as you see with your son's friend, 
when they're invited by a trusted friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to have a church that we're excited about inviting people to. And I'll, I'll share one other story with you about kind of a change that took place in me. We were living in Atlanta before we moved back to Pittsburgh for the church. And I had people inviting me to their church. And my wife was working in human resources. And she had people who reported to her who kept inviting her. So we said, well, let's go. We love our church. The problem was the church we were going to, our two teenage daughters, every week was a total battle to get them to go. And it was a drag down <laughs> fight about trying to get them in the car. We're going to go. And they just did, they just hated it. And I was got so mad every morning. I spent the whole time in church asking for forgiveness for how I talked to my daughters. Um, so finally, we did go to this church, and it happened to be Andy Stanley's church, North Point Community Church in Atlanta. And um, as the service was ending, my daughter had her phone out, calling her best friend, saying, you're coming to church with me next week. And so Linda and I said, well, maybe we're coming back here, you know. Yeah. And the fact is, when we approach church in a way, prayerfully, of course, in, in a way that we want to be multi-generational. Then all of a sudden we find that not only are our children coming, but they're going to be excited to invite others to come. Mm-hmm. And that rubs off on us. Um, I had members say, I haven't invited a friend or a relative to come to church for over a decade. And now I find myself inviting them all the time because I'm excited about it. And so that, you know, perhaps a younger uh, multi-generational church makes those of us who are in our 50s and 60s feel more young at heart. And there's there's so many benefits to being able to say, God, make me a change leader. Let me be a catalyst for change so that the amazing things about our church or our business or whatever organization you're leading, uh, that those can continue into the next generation. My friend uh, David Postel used to work for Ford Motor Company, and he said, we have an expression at Ford, you can sell an old man a young man's car, but you can't sell a young man an old man's car. <laughs> and he was talking about the face of the church. And, and it's, I love being around young people that are in leadership positions and, and you know, making mistakes and stuff. As somebody who's in my 50s, I could care. Of course, they're going to make mistakes. I want them to be have a place where they can grow in leadership and grow in responsibility and take risks and and share their passion and enthusiasm. I'll, I'll sign up for that all day long. I I don't need to see my own face up there all the time, uh, but I'll tell you if it's just people like me up there all the time, eventually the the, the younger generation is going to stop coming. I just love a lot of the principles you're talking about. Um, I, I want to bridge that into a, a new topic, or, and that is succession. I know that we talked before we hit the, the record button of, the, of your next book, but it's you're, li- you're, you're living your next book. I know at St. Benedict Parish, we, we've lived your next book. Uh, and I look at how the leadership at St. Benedict Parish, how much it shifted and changed, the, the, the problems that they're solving are new problems, and it continues to grow and do amazing things. And 
I am so proud of those guys. I'm so excited for what they're doing and how they're doing it. And they're doing it differently than we did it. And so this whole idea, because one of the things you said, you know, when you're challenging leaders to be change leaders is, you know, what do you want for your church? But in our tradition, in the Catholic church, we move priests around every six to eight years and just arbitrarily sometimes. And I think some dioceses are recognizing that's problematic because as if somebody is, ju- you're just a renter, you know, you're just a leader on loan for a short, short period of time. Cause if you're going to do anything significant, the next person's probably going to come in and not be able to keep it going anyway. So why bother? And so what happens is parishioners also recognize that like, why bother? I know, you know, father so-and-so was really excited, but let's face it, like he's only going to be here for a few years and then he's off to the next place anyway. So let's not get too excited. Like, and so there's this mediocrity we've, 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 we've needed right into the dough of our, of our Catholic tradition, which is so unhelpful. And father James addresses that to some degree in his latest book beyond the parish. And, uh, and so that's a big thing, but, but let's talk a little bit. Like if you are six, like I, I look at the place that, St. Benedict got to when uh, I was called out of to, to start the full-time ministry at Divine Renovation and Father James was called into uh, by, by God himself into diocesan ministry and continuing with Divine Renovation and then handing it over. Talk to me about some of the things that you've had to wrestle with, some of the things that you've learned that you think, hey, you know what, here's some good advice for, for those types of scenarios. Um, like, I always have seen at least in my later years, that a big part of my responsibility was to raise up effective leaders, uh, knowing that I wouldn't be here forever. And uh, in fact, I always, you know, the the passage where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, uh, in that parable, the only one who did not hear those words was the person who buried his talent. And uh, so I always had a passion about not burying my talents, but using them. And, you know, because I wanted one day to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But as I grew a little bit older, I felt like, uh, you know, I wouldn't say God was saying to me, but I, I felt like the Lord was leading me into this concept. As a leader, you need to not just unearth your talents. You need to unearth the talents of the people who look to you for leadership the people in your sphere of influence. And so well done, good and faithful servant for the leader is not just about you. It's about the leaders around you. Are you elevating the leaders around you? Um, or are they going to get frustrated and just leave? Um, because God built into them this desire to use their gifts. And so I, I look at principles like Moses, when he started to share his authority with many leaders, and then he raised up leaders with very meaningful roles, like Caleb, like Joshua, to finally, at the point of his death, um, God led him to choose Joshua. But he had many leaders around him. And you look at the character of a Caleb. Caleb could have been a, an amazing person to step into leadership as well. Um, so I, I think raising up leaders up for our staff one of on their actual performance plans, they had to name two people who they were mentoring. And typically that was next generation leaders, mentoring to do what they do. Because uh, to me, if somebody goes away on vacation and they come back and people say, oh my God, everything fell apart when you were gone. Oh, um, uh, 
oh my, I, I can't believe how, how much we need you here. Well, Lord, if somebody is saying that, that's not a sign of your importance. That's a sign of your failure as a leader. If you, if you can't raise up people who can step in when you're gone, the sign of a leader is not what happens when you're there. It's what happens when you're not there. And uh, so to me, I've had this passion for a long time to identify, you can't mentor everybody, but to mentor those high potential leaders who were around me so that they could step into different roles. One of those in our church and not having the, the kind of um, uh, organization, the kind of uh, uh, like the Diocese of Pittsburgh, for instance, for Bishop Zubik makes choices, you know, there's always, he's always there to be able to move a priest into a parish when that parish, the last parish priest is gone for whatever reason. Uh, as a, a church that did not have that kind of luxury, <laughs> we, um, I, I knew that a time was going to come when I needed to hand off the church. So I was about 65. I'm 60, I'll be 67 this year. I was about 65 when I handed off the church to my successor, but I had been mentoring him for 15 years. He was like my right-hand person, and he, he spoke a lot. And as the time came for the handoff, he took a higher and higher profile role within the congregation. Uh, so a big, uh, big topic, what I'll be talking about in my next book, is about leadership succession and your passion as a leader to raise up successors, you don't always know what's gonna happen when you're gone, but do you wanna pave the way? Like uh, David knew he wasn't supposed to build the temple, but he set up Solomon for success by securing all of the craftsmen, securing all the materials. And so are we paving the way for the next generation to be successful? And it's a, it's a real passion of mine. And to my surprise, it's, it's any number. I didn't have to go far to talk to pastors who are incoming and outgoing pastors who, with the support of their bishop in, or their denomination, even in denominations where the outgoing pastor was forbidden to be involved in the selection or mentoring of the incoming pastor, there are so many exceptions being made because the bishops or the authorities in the denomination are saying, actually, this continuity of leadership is a wise thing to help the health and keep the momentum going, um, particularly of churches that are heading in a positive trajectory. So um, that's a long answer to your question. That's the perfect answer. <laughs> My passion is now. <laughs> I love it. Because at the end of the day, if, if, if there's always a restart as if nothing good was ever happening, I'll tell you, that's a terrific way to disengage competent lay people. Like, they just, it's just exhausting. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, gosh, you know. And, and so that continuity really is important because what it takes to turn around a church is not insignificant in terms of the amount of energy, dream, sacrifice. It's ginormous. And so if you're going to ask that type of a commitment from people, then you have to give a commitment in return uh, in terms of the leadership structure of whichever, whatever your organization is. Because to put people through all that and then all of a sudden fire in somebody else who's not uh, aligned, well, that's awfully disrespectful and unhelpful. And it's, it's a great way to kill the church. And 
whatever organ, other organization that uh, that you're that you're responsible for leading in. That's, that is so so important and so cool. And so, what's your hope for your successor and what and and what what kinds of things did you feel you needed to do after the transition took place? Like so, as you hand over the keys or whatever expression metaphor we'd use for that. Um, what were some of the things that you had to challenge yourself to do or not do? Well, my role was uh, to when when I handed things off to him, and it was a service where we had people. I mean, it was very clearly a service in which he was being um, handed the baton, the, mm-hmm. the mantle to lead the church, and the church knew it was happening, and they were supportive and. I felt like actually that day that my role shifted. I actually felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, um, you finished your work here. Mm-hmm. Um, I called you to turn the, you know, to lead the change in this church and to hand it over to a next generation leader. And you've done that. And I've got many more things for you to do. And so with that in mind, I shifted uh, to the role of cheerleader. And Jason knows that he can call me for advice at any time, but I never call him with advice. I never call him to say, you know, that message really wasn't that great this weekend, or why did you do this? And why didn't you do that? Uh, Part of the reason is because I feel like the anointing of the Holy Spirit for me to lead the church was handed to another person. And so why would I think that I still had that same anointing to be able to tell him what to do. Uh, I also am fully aware of this, that uh, to reach the next generation, the ideas on how to best reach the next generation typically aren't going to come from my generation. They're right. going to come from the next generation. And so it need, you need a next generation leader to really win the hearts and the minds of you, you know, our children and grandchildren. And so I was, I was thrilled. One of my good friends was saying to me, I just liked your style better. I just wish the church was more like when you were in leadership, et cetera, which is, you know, uh, makes me feel good, but it, it, you know, it, it's also uh, almost like an irrelevant discussion. <laughs> but at any rate, he said, I just liked it. And he said, but you know what? The other night, both of my teenage daughters said, I can't wait to go to church. And they're going now to this church and they invited the one invited her boyfriend and they're saying, we've never been so excited about her. And he said, you know what, maybe, and everybody in our church knows the story of uh, St. Eleanor. or And he said, maybe I'm Eleanor Evans now. (laughs) And and I just need to uh, accept the fact that things aren't as, I liked the way you were doing things 15 years ago. And right. so it is this, this constant growth uh, and a constant willingness to say, Lord, what is it going to take? And so, so to me, knowing that the church is in the hands of next generation leaders who are going to do some things that work and some things that don't, just like I did, and they'll find their way. And they have maintained the same vision, mission, beliefs, values that they were taught and were woven deep into their souls. 
And they're just saying now, what approaches do we need to take to keep this a multi-generational church for, you know, for the long term, not just the short term? Mm-hmm. I love that vision because one of the things that we ran into at St. Benedict Parish that we had to address from time to time was people feeling like, well, wait a minute, like the older people, the people with gray hair would be like, well, wait a minute, you guys are anti-gray hair. Like, what about us? What about us? And so there was that kind of, it's like, no, that's not it at all. What would you say to those folks? Well, what was interesting is, uh, and we did, of the 150 people who were attending our church when we started to turn some things around, probably within the first two years, about 50 of them went to other churches, mm. which they were all still Christ followers, all still had a home in heaven. And so they were attending a different church. But within those first two years, our attendance was at 400. And it was uh, an attendance that was now becoming uh, people of all ages who were attending. Um, now we have probably 500 people who are 50 plus in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to the 150 or a little, a little less back then. So we have a thriving 50-plus group who are doing all kinds of things together and in uh, not just spiritual but also social ways. And they just love, they just love the church. And they love awesome. that their kids and grandkids are going. And so in uh, and, and one of them recently said to me, I, I just feel so young at heart being able to come to this church. And we do have a little louder music than they were used to in, you know, 20 years ago. And so we have, they all know their earplugs <laughs> back at the sound booth and they pop them in as they come to church. Because as we age, what we don't realize is as we age, our hearing changes. And yes. so our, our hearing is more sensitive to bass and you know, loud noises. So when we say it's loud, it really, what we should say is it's loud for me at age 67, you know, yes, it's, it's not, it, it wouldn't be loud for me at age 35. Believe me, when I was listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and others, and I've been to many concerts, they were not, I didn't think they were loud at all. I, I would say, turn it up. <laughs> and, but, you know, Hey, Everything changes when we get a little older. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you, you don't know that quite yet, Ron. You're still oh, I'm younger. starting to feel it. I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> but, um, but our hearing is one of those things. So should I say everything needs to be toned down for the ears of a 67-year-old mm. uh, or else I'm going to be mad? No. Uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's just not a realistic approach to almost anything. You know, it's like, yes. I know you love me, even though I'm 67, but I don't want you to build the entire organization around me mm-hmm. at age 67. It's, and if I require that, then, then that's something between me and God. That's, that, that's not something that's wrong with the past. Amen. Amen. Lee, you've given us so much to think about and consider in this podcast. I've had so much fun. I really encourage all of our listeners, if you're in any form of leadership or or if you just want to influence your leaders, because some of these principles you're going, yeah, that's our church. Holy cow. We have got to do something. You're going to want to go out and get that book for a new generation by Lee Critcher. Yeah. Actually, if you go to a website, futureforwardchurches.com, you can find the book. 
plus some free resources and articles and videos that you you may find hopefully insightful and inspiring um, from people like Carrie Newhoff and a number of others who uh, really have a similar passion. So futureforchurches.com will get you uh, some resources that uh, can be provocative in a positive way. So cool. I'm going to put that in our show notes so our listeners can go there and check that out. You've been an absolute blessing to us today, Lee. Thank you for all that you do uh, to bless others. You really are a blessing to so many. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for making the time to be on the show today. My pleasure, Ron. God bless you and everyone listening. If you're a leader leading change and need prayer, Go to our website at ronhuntley.com, hit the connect button, and let us know how we can pray for you, because we certainly will. And can I let you know how you can pray for us? I'm joining Father Anthony Caruana in his new assignment in Bedford, Nova Scotia at St. Ignatius Parish. Please pray for us, that as we make new friends and discern how God is rallying us to do something amazing, that together we'll reach a whole new generation of people. Now may be the perfect time to take our new course on the six fundamentals for leading a turnaround. Or if you want to inquire about a speaker event, either online or in person, let's start a conversation. We're here to help. I want to encourage you, as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Thank you.